Welcome to the Rescue Radio, the show that brings you closer to the outdoors. Hi, friends. Today we'll be talking about airbags, and I invited uh, my fellow PMR rescuer, Christopher Van Tilburg. Christopher, can you tell us something about yourself? Yeah, thanks for having me here, Anya. Um, I live in Hood River, Oregon, a lifelong Pacific Northwest resident, and I did emergency medicine for over a decade, and now I work as a doctor in occupational and travel medicine uh, in Hood River. And you are involved with PMR as a medical director? Yes, I'm a medical director for PMR, and I've been with Hood River Craigrath's Mountain Rescue Team for 22 years. Oh, wow. That's a long time. Thank you for your service. Yeah, it's real. It's so much fun, and it's really rewarding. And you get to mirror your work with what you love to do. I do. I'm really fortunate. That's fantastic. So today I wanted to talk about avalanche airbags. Um, it seems like not many people are using it, and... I was thinking, how do we demystify airbags in the um, in our outdoors community? That's a great question, Anya. I think uh, airbags are relatively new, and they've only been around for about 20, 25 years, and we have a lot of information about them, but we don't necessarily have that information out to the public. And why is that? Well, I think in part it's because Airbags are costly. It's in part because airbags are heavy. And it's in part because those of us who've been ski touring and climbing for years and years and years are, it's hard for us to change. That's just part of being a human. It's hard for us to add a new device or a new tool to our backcountry arsenal. It just seems that airbags are considered additional safety equipment as opposed to a trans receiver or a probe. Or a shovel they usually take with you. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting uh, concept. I I've been teaching avalanche safety and mountain safety for the better part of two decades, and one of my friends a few years ago mentioned that we spend a lot of time and energy in preventing avalanche deaths, but there are many many things in the world that are have much higher rates of. Uh, morbidity and mortality right and so what i that what that led me to is to try to investigate are we teaching people the best avalanche safety that we can so before we dive in more into this how and when was avalanche airbag uh, developed well the airbag was developed back in mid 1980s and it was by a researcher was also a backcountry enthusiast who was investigating uh, tools to make us safe in the backcountry. And there was a anecdotal evidence that um, a farmer or a hunter who was carrying a deer on his back fell in deep snow and seemed to float. And that's sort of an anecdotal um, way that we got to develop our eggs. Fantastic. And can you explain how they work? Yeah, airbags are quite interesting. They in the short version is an airbag is basically a balloon that's 170 liters and it's inflated with either compressed air or some other type of compressed gas, or it's inflated by a fan. And by having 170 liters on your back, if it's inflated, it increases your volume. And so 
it follows the physics principle of granular seg- segregation where large particles in a moving flow will migrate to the top. It's kind of like we call it the mixed nut jar effect, whereas we shape the mixed nut jar, the large nuts always end up at the top. Mm-hmm. Same principle. So by increasing your volume, you're more likely to end up at the top. And then you said it's 170 liters? Yeah, that's kind of the standard airbag balloon is 170 liters when it's inflated. And it doesn't matter how big they are? Like, would it be better to come up with an even bigger balloon? Yeah, great question. Uh, Most of the airbags, except for one or two companies, most have been developed in Europe. And so that's the European standard. And the reason a larger balloon certainly would float somebody to the surface better, but the larger balloon then necessitates more engineering challenges like a larger canister, a larger fan. And so 170 liters just was found to be a reasonable compromise. I see. Are they reusable? Do you just change the canister? How does it work? Well, that's a real issue. It's an issue with all different types of technology that uh, there's no standardization amongst companies. And so some, mostly the canister is proprietary to a brand and um, most of them are refillable compressed air and you can refill the canister. There are some companies that still make very good airbags that are sealed cartridges, one and done. You you deploy your airbag and the cartridges, you have to discard them and get a new set. Mm. So it makes it more difficult to share it among friends, right? If you have multiple different brands, you can't just bring extra canister and share it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I was on a trip in the Wallawas five years ago, and we had um, eight people, five of us had airbags, and nobody could interchange canisters. <sighs> But largely that's been solved with those people like myself who use the fan airbag, the electronic airbag, so there's no canister involved. And do airbags protect from trauma? Yeah, we think airbags work to save lives in a couple of different ways. First of all, like we already talked about, they float you to the top of an avalanche and you're caught and you play airbag and you hopefully don't get buried. The other thing, we think that they protect against trauma. I mean, you can just imagine if you've got a 170 liter cushion on your back, it most likely helps. We've got several anecdotal cases, including one that happened on Mount Hood at the Mountain Meadow Ski Resort uh, from a patroller that survived an avalanche with an airbag. And that was, that's a type of anecdotal case that we think that, that prevented trauma by having just this large cushion. So let's get to my very first question. How come airbags are not part of like the standard AVI package right now? And how are they, how are they in comparison to trans receivers? Because when you think about it, trans receivers is after the fact where the airbags will help you float and maybe prevent getting buried. Right. So we can first talk about transceivers, if that's okay. Yeah, let's do that. Transceivers uh, were developed in the 70s, and it's a two-way signaling device, as most listeners probably know. But transceivers don't save very many lives, and they dramatically changed, reduced the time it took to find somebody. So before transceivers or without transceivers, it takes on average two hours to find somebody who's buried in an avalanche. Mm -hmm. And transceivers reduced that to 30 minutes. And that's based on the uh, data that we have. And most of the data is before modern transceivers, which have three antennas and digital processing. 
But the reason why they don't work very well is because uh, a quarter of all people caught in an avalanche die from trauma, or a quarter of all people who die in avalanches are from trauma. And the second reason is that most of the time when you find somebody with a transceiver, it's too late mm-hmm. because people uh, often die in four to six minutes without air. Mm-hmm. So transceivers don't work all that well. So when you think about airbags, it's a better chance of survival if you have one. Yeah, and we think that if you look at the data, you know, I'm a doctor, so I'm a scientist, and I look at science, and if you look at the data, airbags most likely work equally as well as transceivers to reducing deaths in avalanches. The big difference, as you already mentioned, Anya, is that you don't really pull out a beacon or a transceiver until somebody's already buried, but an airbag prevents that burial in the first place, so it works one step before burial. Do you recall how many fatalities on average per year do we have from avalanche in the U.S.? Yeah, we have in the United States around 28 deaths per year and about 150 worldwide. Oh, wow. Uh, Can you talk about the Mayer-Harvey study? Because I found it really interesting. I, I love that study. It's so <laughs> well written, and it's uh, it's a, it's a small study. So Meyer and Harvey are two Swiss scientists and skiers, and they did a study in Davos, Switzerland, which is sort of has a very large um, snow and avalanche and mountain safety research institute. And they set off avalanches with crash test dummies, and they had I think they set off a total of six avalanches, roughly, but they had fourteen dummies with airbags and when those tumbled in the avalanche all 14 were visible on the surface after the avalanche Mm -hmm. and they were buried about on average 15 centimeters deep so not very deep so Mm -hmm. you know a foot a little Mm -hmm. bit more Mm -hmm. a little bit less and they of the dummies without airbags they had five and four of the five were completely buried not visible so basically what that study showed us is that with an airbag, you almost every all the dummies were on the surface of the snow and visible. They didn't need a transceiver search. Hmm. So Christopher, before, before he came over here, he sent me a couple of the articles he wrote. Uh, one from Medical Magazine, was it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was <laughs> Wilderness and Environmental Medicine. Right, another one for the outside? Mm-hmm. For outside online. Awesome. Um, so in there, there was a study about airbags deflating after the deployment, like three minutes after, to give you space for breathing, for air. Can you talk about that? Because yeah. I found it fascinating, too. Yeah, I, I think that's fascinating, too. And so I mentioned that airbags, we know that they prevent burials we or help prevent burials. We know that they probably prevent trauma and injuries, and we think that they might actually be useful to allow somebody to breathe under the snow while they're awaiting rescue. And so a friend of mine who's a physician and a mountain medicine researcher, Scott McIntosh, did a study, I think probably with medical students or somebody who needed the money, (laughs) and he buried people, I think he buried 12 people with a um, Black Diamond Jet Force Pro airbag, (laughs) and they, they deployed it, they buried them, and then this particular airbag deflates after three minutes, that's part of the little computer chip. So after you deploy the airbag, you're caught in an avalanche, or in this case, simulated, then the airbag deflates. The idea being now you have a 170 liter balloon that's deflated, potentially 
a very large air pocket to allow you to breathe while you're waiting rescue. And he found 11 of the 12 people he buried, buried were able to survive with a reasonable air pocket. Well, and it's at like an hour or so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it usually takes, what, 25 minutes to, to find somebody with transreceiver? On, on average, 25 minutes. Hopefully, those of us who are backcountry skiing regularly, hopefully we're practicing and yeah. we're much better than 25 minutes. A professional ski patroller or a mountain rescuer would be expected to do it in, you know, under uh, five or 10 minutes. Yeah, our standard, I think, for PMR is five minutes. Yeah. I don't have to speak, but I think it's five minutes. Yep. So... Okay, well, this is all great, but still, how come people are not convinced, or how come we don't see more uh, people using airbags in the backcountry? I mean, the, the data is there. Yeah, I think if I had to give one answer, I would say it's because professional societies in North America have not really embraced it as standard. And I'm not on a campaign to get people to use airbags. I'm really most interested in get, giving people with anything I do, doctoring, mountain rescue, whatever, I'm interested in giving people the most valuable and complete information they can have. And so and so I think because professional groups and societies in North America haven't embraced it. Will it be the cost too, maybe? Yeah, it, I think they are expensive compared to a standard backpack. But when I talked to Avalanche experts, when I interviewed them for both the scientific piece I wrote and the, as well as the general audience piece I wrote for Outside that you mentioned. I, when I talked to experts, you know, they didn't really think cost was an issue. And I have guide friends who are given free airbags and they don't use them. Would weight play a role in this perhaps? Yeah, I think, you know, those of us who ski in the backcountry a lot, you know, we are always concerned about weight. But, you know, everything, everything is have everything weighs something and you just have to make a decision. What is, what is the most valuable piece of equipment? So I have friends who are, always go touring and climbing with a rope and or sometimes a tarp and or sometimes two liters of water. Well, if you go on a two-hour tour and you just left your car and you guzzled a liter of water, you don't probably need water to save your life. So, you know, you just, we all have to make choices. So yeah. I think we take things in our backpack that may be less effective at saving our lives than the 200 grams of an airbag. Right. And then, so how many different types of airbags are there? And then how many do we have a choice here in the U.S.? Because I imagine here we have a smaller choice because people aren't using it as in Europe. Yeah, there's two general categories of airbags there's the electronic fan airbags which you most of them are battery powered there's one company that's a super capacitor with a backup battery and they uh, the advantage of that fan electronic fan airbag is you can deploy it over and over by just charging it or using the battery until it's dead and so you can get multiple deployments in the field you can practice with the airbag and deploy it regularly and uh, those are those are really what a lot of people are using now but the canister airbags which are compressed Compressed gas, or in the United States, mostly compressed air. The advantage of those bags are much less expensive. They're they're lighter, but once you deploy the canister, it's gone. It's one shot. So if you're on a three day trip to the Lawas uh, and you deploy it, uh, then you either need a you need to have a backup canister available, or you don't have an, an airbag for the rest of the trip. So that's the disadvantage. Or we think your life choices because if you get caught three times in the avalanche, yeah, <laughs> one trip. Maybe you're doing something else wrong. Maybe you're doing something else yeah. wrong. <laughs> Are they hard to learn how to use them? Would it be also a reason why people 
are not willing to to invest money in them. Yeah, that's a good point. I think uh, I thought about that a little bit, but I think they are. It's it's definitely one more thing that you have to learn how to use, learn how to charge it, learn how to replace the canister if it's a canister or a bag, and it's not it's not incredibly easy to deploy. In fact, my colleague Bill Atkins in Colorado recommended that we don't just practice using them in the parking lot or in our garage, but you actually do roll down a hill doing a somersault and try to deploy the airbag. And he said he did it three times and could only deploy it twice because it's a little bit, you know, you got to get to the handle that's on your backpack strap and then yank it and hopefully you've done it properly. So the best way is to react right away. Like don't wait. Correct. Yeah. And they take, you know, five to 10 seconds to inflate. So yeah, you want to try to deploy it right away, but you know, it's like anything we, any piece of equipment we buy. And as you know, in mountain rescue, we get a new piece of equipment. We have to learn how to use it, train on it, use it regularly until we feel proficient with it. And what about maintenance? Are they hard to maintain? Like, do you have to do, do you have to check things or? Uh, you definitely have to, if you have a fan airbag, you definitely have to pay attention that it's charged, but there's not much maintenance, but you know, generally people recommend you deploy it once a year. Um, and then there's different types of batteries that you have to make sure you, you know, appropriately take care of the battery if you have to trickle charge it or completely deplete it depending on the airbag and then the canisters definitely you want to have them refilled uh, preferably by a professional because you know you have to make sure the gasket is changed or at least checked regularly and then so do they ever expire yeah certainly i think like any piece of equipment uh they you know have a defined uh, defined life uh, span for use and i think we run in this with other products too like uh, avalanche transceivers we tend to sometimes use them longer than you should and forget about changing batteries and such what about community do you think that maybe if the community like local shops would talk more about the use of them would it help yeah that's a really interesting and very important idea and we're really lucky in both the um, portland and hood river communities and we have shops like the mountain shop mm-hmm. and pure stoked sports in the river mm-hmm. that really embrace airbag use they make them available several brands available they use them themselves so the employees are very educated on how to help people shop for airbags and so i think that that tends to really promote use in the community and especially with social media um, and i think communities that don't have that solid mountain solid you know commercial retail shop like the mountain shop don't necessarily have that advantage of um, getting the word out so christopher have you ever deployed your own avalanche bag in the avalanche i have not but i was very close last year in the law was mm-hmm. i was with a group of friends and a couple of guides and we were in an avalanche in the Wallawas. Nobody was caught, but one party, one of our group triggered the avalanche. Fortunately, we were taking a lot of precautions. And so those people had already skied the slope were out of the way. We had a spotter above the slope who saw the avalanche and yelled. And the person who triggered it was able to ski out to the side. But the avalanche came within about 10 or 15 feet of me. And I had my fairly chaotic and even somebody like myself or you were in mountain rescue. We are sort of used to being in crisis mode, at least um, a small portion of our lives in a professional and volunteer capacity. Even then, it's still when the avalanche happens in the mountains, when you're really far from help, it's fairly um, unnerving. Yeah, unnerving. And it's difficult to function, you know, because I had to keep an eye on my friend who was next to me. I'd use my poles because the snow was really deep to try to push myself away. I had to have my hand ready to deploy my airbag. So I didn't deploy it because the avalanche didn't reach us, but I was ready to. And that was the only close call I've had, although I've deployed them 
lots in practice. Do you know how big the avalanche was? It was very large. It was like a D3, I think, as mm-hmm. on the on the destructive scale. So it was probably span um, 60 feet wide. And then because of a deep layer, it skipped a slope and then remotely triggered another slope about 60 oh, feet wide. So it was fairly large. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> yeah. It was, a, it was kind of a close call. We were, we were okay, but we were pretty safe, but it still, it happens. Yeah, but, you know, if you do things right, like you did, you have your chances of surviving. Speaking of doing things right, when do you carry your AVI gear? Um, how do you make a decision where to bring it with you? Well, that's a great question, and that's really pertinent to the Pacific Northwest because we do a lot of ski touring and climbing in the winter and spring, but we also have a, a spring-summer volcano season in which uh, wind slab avalanches and storm slab avalanches aren't prominent and we have you know wet wet snow avalanches and so i what i do is i bring i ski tour all winter long three or four times a week sometimes i bring the same stuff every time and it's kind of like the the steve jobs wearing the same outfit like every time so he doesn't have to think about what you waste any brain power on what he wears well or what he wore so it's kind of like i i bring the same equipment every time i go on skis with a few exceptions. Like yesterday climbed uh, Mount Hood and, and we had a really successful mountain rescue mission with Port Mountain Rescue and Craig Rats. And the, that exception is when I'm climbing a glaciated peak, I'll bring crampons and an ice tool. Otherwise I bring my airbag pack and transceiver shovel probe, pretty much the same backup clothing, the same backup pair of gloves uh, every time. So I come home from either a mission or a ski tour I dry everything that needs to be dried, and I leave it out on my mudroom floor, and then when it's dry, I replace stuff that needs to be replaced, and I repack it, and it's ready to go. So I bring the same stuff every time, and that way I don't waste any brain power on trying to decide what I'm going to bring. That's a really good tip. When we do that a lot, right? Like yeah. We're at a tra- even if you're summer hiking, you're at a yeah. trailhead, and you're like, oh, I don't really need my first aid kit. I'm going to leave it in the car. Oh, I don't really need my rain shell, I'm going to leave it in the car. So I don't, none of that ever pertains to me. Yeah. It's like with the rescue pack. I have my rescue pack and I don't touch it. Right. Because <laughs> then you don't the have to same think about thing. It. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So one thing I would like to talk about is avalanche. It seems like it didn't get traction in the U.S. Can you talk about what they are? Yeah. The Avalon is um, a pretty amazing device. It's no longer available in the United States. You can still get it from Farino in Europe where it's not called the Avalon. It's called something else. But um, the Avalon's pretty amazing. And I try to get people, incidentally, to call it an undersnow breathing tube because that's a more generic term. The Avalon is a brand name. But what the Avalon was actually pretty simple and it was a, a tube with a, a couple one-way valves in it so you put it in your mouth when you were buried you breathed out and the expired air was routed to your back which is where the tube went breathed in triggered a valve that sucked in air from your chest and the reason why it works actually a friend of mine colin grissom who's a physician and a mountain medicine specialist in salt lake city he did some of the landmark snow burial studies and the snow burial studies he and some other colleagues did were, were showed us really two things that are pretty amazing one is that if you're buried in snow in an avalanche and you your airway isn't clogged with snow you can breathe for a while Mm. like we used to think oh there's no oxygen transmission in the snow that's not the case so if you have an open airway your mouth isn't full of snow you have an air pocket or space in front of you you can um you can stay alive for a while and the second thing it showed us 
is that when you breathe, when you suffocate in an avalanche, you don't suffocate from lack of oxygen. You suffocate because you're rebreathing your own carbon dioxide mm-hmm. and you're diluting out the oxygen. So less complicated or least complicated as possible, I can try to explain it. If oxygen content of air is 21%. So if you have a fixed space and you keep breathing out without any fresh air, you're going to keep diluting that oxygen concentration until eventually there's not enough. So it seems like it's popular in Europe. Why isn't it popular here? Well, it just didn't really ever catch on and nobody's really sure why. And it might be because airbags came on the scene fairly quickly after the Avalon, um, or it might just because people didn't uh, think they needed it, but it, it really, the snow burial studies really show that people can survive for, for a, a, you know, an hour buried with, if they can prevent themselves from rebreathing the carbon dioxide. But you can still get it in Europe, right? Do you want it to? Yeah, there's a company, Farino, in Italy that has um, a backpack with it built in, but mm. it's, you can't, um, to my knowledge, get it in the United States. Nobody's making it here. It's a shame. <laughs> yeah. And I do have some guide friends um, and some guides that I interviewed for a story about the Avalon a few years ago, and they were using an airbag pack with an Avalon zip tied to one strap for mm. maximum safety. And my first reaction was, you know, that's that's completely <laughs> overboard with safety. But my second reaction is those of us who go into dangerous places like us, who, those of us who are mountain rescuers, ski patrollers, you want to maximize safety. It's certainly one way to do it is have an airbag and uh, an avalanche. Um, but it, it's a lot of devices and it's a lot of things to remember to do if you're caught in an avalanche. Right, because you have to pull for the airbag and then you have to remember to put the mouthpiece in. Yes, exactly. While tumbling down the mountain. Yeah, and so is that <laughs> is that too complex of a safety process for human for humans? It may be. Yeah. Christopher, some really good information here today. Any parting thoughts for our listeners? Well, once again, I want to mention that I'm not here to convince people to use an airbag or convince people that it's the primary safety tool. What I would like people to know is I want people to be educated on all of the safety devices they have in the mountains and particularly avalanches. And also, I, I think that people should not be told that a transceiver shovel and probe is the standard safety triad when an airbag is probably more effective at saving lives. So we should be telling people the standard is transceiver, shovel, probe, airbag. Thank you so much, Christopher, uh, for all the great information here today. I hope you stay safe in the mountains and um, I'll see you on the mountain. I'll see you there soon. I really appreciate the chance to come talk and appreciate all your work for Port Mountain Rescue. Same to you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed this episode about avalanches and airbags. Please check us out at our website, pmru.org. We are also on Facebook under Portland Mountain Rescue, as well as Instagram under also Portland Mountain Rescue. Have a wonderful time in the mountains if you're going up there and stay safe. Until next time.